Welcome to Breaking the Cycle of Poverty featuring Jay Height, Executive Director of Shepherd Community Center in Indianapolis. My name is Tim Swearens, and I'm your host for these conversations that explore why poverty remains such a persistent problem in the United States. On this episode, Shepherd Assistant Director Tim Street joins us for a conversation about the 10 essential assets a person needs to break out of poverty and sustain independence. Jay, would you start us by introducing Tim to our audience? Yeah, I would say one of the most influential folks in my life has been Tim Street and in his leadership, his friendship, and his work in the city. Uh, Many years ago, we combined our ministries together, and then Tim has set on a course to continue his education so he can be a real doctor. And uh, he has helped in the development of the how we do things. And uh, whether it was Poverty 101, whether it's City 101, or now the 10 Assets, Tim has helped shape the philosophy and helped uh, me better understand how, as a leader at Shepherd, uh, how we need to lead this organization. So Tim is, we've got him a new title. He's Chief Learning Officer. And uh, we're hoping that maybe he can help me learn algebra. But he's done a lot of great things. Uh, I don't think... That's a hard job. I don't think God could even do that. But Tim... Uh, I'm, I'm excited to have him here with us today. Uh, as I said, I can't say enough good and positive about his impact in my life. I think uh, the lives of so many will have been impacted and will continue through the work of his hands. Tim, thank you for, for being here today. You, you played a key role in identifying for Shepherd the 10 assets, 10 essential assets for helping a person break out of poverty. Uh, the first one is faith in a, in a personal God. Why is faith essential for leaving behind poverty and reaching self-sufficiency? Well, that's, uh, that's how, you know, do we have two hours for this podcast? Because that, that question alone would take that long, or the answer would take that long. But, um, you know, the short answer is that in the research, uh, those who profess a strong faith in a, in a personal God— mm-hmm. Uh, not just a creator who then, you know, let everything go, but a personal God that I can have a relationship with who provides divine guidance. You know, the research uh, shows that those who have a relationship with uh, a personal God have better outcomes in so many areas of life, better health outcomes, you know, healing more quickly from uh, disease and heart attacks and, and other things like that. But then um, so there's, you know, the, also they're shown to, uh, you know, to, to feel like they have more community in their lives, more purpose, which, which is very, very important. But, but for our purposes, you know, the, the kids that we work with are, are very, very smart. And, uh, you know, they're, not, they're too smart to miss the fact that there's a disconnect between what we tell them, which is that, um, you know, you're, you're special and you're loved and you have a bright future. Uh, and what the world tells them. And what the world tells these kids is that you're poor, you're black, you're a new immigrant, you live on the wrong side of the Monon. Uh, you don't get what other children get. You're not as valued in our society as they are. And, um, and, and so we, we believe wholeheartedly that the, the very first step in breaking the cycle of poverty, particularly with children, is, is to change that mindset. And, to convin- and, and the first step in doing that is to convince them that they are not a mistake that they are created by a loving God or knit them in their mother's womb. And, uh, and that, that knowledge alone is, is the first step in, in the transforming of the mind uh, that the Scripture talks about. 
the, the Christian faith, of course, is central to core to Shepherd's mission. But government agencies and even some many nonprofits keep their you know arms linked from faith. How does that impact the the efficiency, the effectiveness of what those of that approach uh, to poverty or relieving poverty as opposed to what Shepherd's doing? Well, I, I think one of the things that is is good about the ten asset model is that we're 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 thinking holistically about the whole person. And if you leave out, I mean, even today, even though even though there's a growing number of what they call nons, people who have a non-affiliation to a particular denomination, even though there's a growing nons, the number, the percentage of people in our in our society that define themselves as spiritual or believe in in a heavenly God. Hasn't really declined much, and um, and I think it's about eighty nine percent. So if you're talking about a society where eighty nine percent of the people uh, profess some type of faith, and you leave faith out of solutions when it comes to transforming lives, you know you're you're leaving out a huge part of it, and and you're not being holistic, and I don't think you're being as effective. But I would say that also I think that there's enough information out there now that I think we're beginning to see that change. You know, we're particularly with our interaction with some government agencies and things like that. We're beginning uh, to see them come around to the realization that that is important in people's lives, and and if it's ignored, it's you know it's not going to get us anywhere. And the you know the separation of church and state is uh, was to protect uh, you know the state uh, and the church from one another, but if that doesn't mean they they that they have to completely ignore one another. Right. Right. It, so what obligation do churches and, and ministries have in terms of seeing poverty as a core part of their purpose? Well, I think, you know, the scriptures are overwhelming uh, when it comes to the number of, uh, of, of times people in poverty are mentioned and that we're, we are to care for. Even, even going back to Old Testament times, I mean, the, when, when God first described the tithe in Deuteronomy, he said, "Set apart, you know, the the first fruits of uh, you know of every year uh, to be the tithe, and and those who are to be cared for through the tithe were the Levites, the widows, orphans, and aliens. And and uh, what they all have in common is that they didn't have the ability to provide for themselves, because the Levites, of course, were were the priests set aside to care for the temple, and so they, when they, you know, the Israelites inherited the promised land, they didn't inherit land, and land was really the only means of production. But women couldn't own land, children, you know, couldn't, aliens weren't supposed to, and so on and so forth. So, so you know, early on, God is saying these people are unable to care for themselves and we're to care for them. And so I think if we define poverty as those who are unable to care for themselves, I think we still have that same calling. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, and, and if you, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen those lists where people assign a topic to each verse of the Bible and, and then, you know, quantify right. them and, yes. you know, total them up. And, and uh, uh, poverty is number two, you know. Um, yeah. and, uh, and so, you know, if we ignore that, then I think, uh, you know, we do it at our peril. And again, you know, we talk about government changing a little bit, but I think the church has changed. I think 25 years ago, um, 30 years ago when I was really a young minister, just a few years into ministry, I didn't, you didn't hear a lot of sermons from the pulpit, particularly in larger churches about caring for the poor. You didn't see churches uh, giving up a, a weekend of tithes to send everybody out to serve in their, in their cities and, and to serve the poor. Uh, but we're seeing that today. And I think that's, you know, I think if you want to study the sort of history of evangelicalism, uh, I think it, it's, a, it's appropriate as we mature, you know, as the, as the, as the, the post-World War II 
you know, uh, post uh, Scopes trial, uh, church matures, we've been able to look at the Bible more holistically and, and add things back in that, that maybe we had ignored. Yeah. This next question is for, for both both of you, uh, drawing on your experience working in this, this community for a number of years now. So uh, about 15% of people in Marion County are now living in poverty, according to the Census Bureau. It's about 150,000 people. And it's an increase from 20 years ago when about 11% of Marion County residents were in poverty. From your perspective, what's driving that increase uh, in poverty among our neighbors? And and why is it happening despite the, the efforts that so many people have put in to improve our schools, to improve our neighborhoods, to bring more jobs into the community? What, what, what's happening? Well, something you said, uh, we don't have neighborhoods. We have places where people live or rent. There is no connection. And if we don't have connection, we don't have community. If we don't have community, we have no social capital. If we have no social capital, we can't pay for societal change. Uh, Robert Putnam mm-hmm. from Harvard. We have lost community. And we talk about here at Shepherd in 2030, we want to re-neighbor the hood. But things dramatically changed from the childhood that the three of us had, where I grew up, I was spanked by every mom on the block. And, uh, you know, we'd go out and play all day. And at lunch, one mom would go out. And and Mm -hmm. life was different, but we ran out the front door off the front porch, played up and down. And then at night, when mom uh, and dad were done with the kitchen uh, dishes and 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 mom would look out the window and look at Mrs. Amos across the driveway because the kitchens were designed to face each other. Mm-hmm. They opened the windows. They would talk while they did dishes. Society changed. The porch went to the back. Privacy fence, garage door openers. You didn't park in your driveway anymore. You had uh, a, an automatic garage door opener. You right. pulled in, you hit it. And then when you stop, you shut it. And the windows were closed because you had central air. And these architectural changes have had a, a dramatic input, uh, impact, I'm sorry. And I think it is there where Putnam would say, it is the faith community that can restore this. Mm-hmm. And so going back to that first asset is, I think, the foundational part of it. And next year, next spring, will be the 60th anniversary of the War on Poverty. I don't think it's an indictment of government. Government's trying to do something it wasn't created to do. I think the ch- it's an indictment of the church because I think the church backed off when government says, we'll take care of the poor and said, okay, we'll let government do it and we'll focus on ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that has created this system of programs, not connection. God created us because I can know Tim. I can know you, Tim. And I can be friends with you. Uh, government makes decisions for the millions. The church can make decisions for the one. And that's where we have to restore this sense of community. We have to restore uh, through our faith this idea that I actually have a neighbor. Uh, you know, one of my pet peeves, crime watch. I'm going to sit out on my porch or in my house and look out the window and watch for someone doing bad stuff and then i'm going to call no we need to get out and be making the connections and doing that hot dog uh grilling contest with the neighbors and then end the day with s'mores together 
I think there's also, I mean, your your question is very, the answer to your question is pretty complex, and that's obviously a huge part of it. I think I think we can also look at, at the reality, the economic realities of the world we live in, mm-hmm. uh, that working class wages have not kept up with inflation. Right. I mean, the buying power of uh, of the working class wage has, has actually declined over the last 30 years. Uh, the economic wealth gap has, has increased tremendously uh, here in this country. And, and I, a lot of it is because I, do, I, I believe we don't really value labor. And um, uh, because if we did, we'd pay it. <laughs> you know, we'd pay what it's, what it's worth. And uh, so I think that, you know, that obviously. But I think another thing is, is you know, as, as, as the wealth gap has increased, as, uh, but as our cities have grown, we've also, we've also isolated the poor. In, into their pockets, and you know, and Jay's talking about those communities. There's no social capital in those communities, and uh, and and there's less and less interaction among children growing up in poverty with middle class, you know, folks than than there used to be. We have economic uh, segregation. Yeah, economic segregation, and. And, uh, you know, he mentioned uh, Putnam out of uh, Harvard. There's also another researcher out of Harvard, Raj Chetty, who's done a lot of research in the last few years about social capital in the community and, um, and, and demonstrates that children who grow up in, you know, poverty, mm-hmm. but in small pockets of public housing in predominantly middle-class communities have outcomes rivaling their middle-class neighbors. Whereas children in poverty growing up in, in uh, public housing in predominantly poor neighborhoods uh, have outcomes that basically rival their neighbors. And, uh, and I, I think it shows us that, uh, that those connections and, and having relationships with people who are different from us, who, who live in different uh, socioeconomic classes, is very, very important, particularly for children in poverty who really need to develop their own future story and be able to see a brighter future because if you can't see a brighter future, then there's no reason to pursue it whatsoever. Yeah. Is there a common path out of poverty that a, a person typically follows or is, is every path unique? Well, I think every path is unique. I mean, I think there's a, tra- you, you know, the reality, if you look at history, the, rea- the middle class is actually a fairly recent historical phenomenon mm-hmm. created by the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and uh, and particularly with the rising of wages with uh, manufacturing and things like that. But the traditional path out of poverty uh, has been a multi-generational path. The first, mm-hmm. uh, the first folks uh, living outside of poverty used, probably did so uh, through a job that paid a living wage uh, where they could afford a home and even afford to possibly save for their kids to go to college. And that was probably, that was likely a manufacturing job, but it did not require an education beyond high school. Uh, the second, then their children went to college and they became, you know, teachers and, uh, and accountants and people like that. And then their children went to grad school and became the doctors and the lawyers. And so it's a, it's a multi-generational progression out of poverty. The problem that we, in, in our society today, is that the percentage of those jobs the percentage of jobs in our society that pay a living wage and don't require anything beyond a high school diploma, you know, has declined dramatically. I mean, most manufacturing jobs in our society have, have gone. I know there's, you know, people are making an effort to bring it back, and I think things are actually looking up a little bit in that regard. But, um, but those jobs don't exist. And so at Shepherd, we're faced often with a challenge of going from generational poverty to college graduate in one generation. Uh, which wasn't required before, and and so that's a particular challenge. Now, a four-year college degree isn't for everybody, and I think I know Shepard's working with 
uh, with folks who are encouraging kids to go into trades and things like that, and 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 that can rise people out of poverty as well. Uh, so the simple answer is every every situation is going to be different, but there are some historical trends uh, that we're actually fighting against at this point in time. Jay, any anything you want to add before we wrap up this episode? I think again it comes down to money isn't the need right. or the solution. Access, access to quality education, access to quality health care. Uh, poverty in Indianapolis is the lack of access, not the lack of resource. Mm-hmm. And so it's about building those bridges. One of the things that Putnam talks about, uh, he grew up in Port Clinton, Ohio. When he went to school, the poor kids, middle class and the wealthy all played on the same basketball team. They all were in the same band and all of these things and they live life together. And, and as you said, we are so segregated now economically that it creates the haves and the have nots at the earliest age. And I think that's where we have to start. I think another important point to make is that economic class is also a lot about stability and how stable your life is. And, you know, Jay said it's money is, isn't necessarily, you know, the answer to poverty. Because, as we say in our teaching, if you give a house uh, to a family that's unstable, they're going to lose the house. Mm-hmm. And I think what the 10 assets is really all about is, is what we refer to as upward stability, encouraging families to increase their stability. And as they do, their children can be, begin to develop their own future story. Because Middle-class children have the benefit of being future-oriented because all of today's needs are met. Uh, I have to be present-oriented if all of today's needs are not met, if I have to just worry about today, getting the today's needs met. When a, when a family uh, is empowered through their own work uh, to have more and more of these assets and their stability increases, uh, their children can begin to see, you know, what today's needs are met, and I can begin to dream about a better future. And uh, so stability is, is so important because, again, as Jay said, we're not really in the business of, of raising income because, you know, or empowering families to raise income. But if they raise their stability, income usually follows. Uh, income is, is not a leading uh, indicator. Uh, it's, it's a lagging indicator. Thank you, Tim and, and Jay. We'll continue this conversation in our next episode. For 37 years, Shepherd Community has made a lasting difference in the lives of thousands and thousands of neighbors, and the Shepherd team couldn't do that work without the support of donors, partners, and volunteers. To learn more about how you can help, please visit shepherdcommunity.org. Thank you for listening.